Hi, you're listening to the Accordion to Me podcast with Veronique Medrano. Hi, I'm Veronique, and we continue our conversation with Canadian country singer-songwriter Dorje, the singing shaman. We talk about legitimizing country music made outside of Nashville, how shamanism shapes their show, and the truth about the deals and behind the scenes of the music industry. As some of you know, early in 2020, I was in an accident. The consequences that you have to live with after can be a lot. You can lose your car, you can lose work, and therefore money, and you can, of course, be super injured and have huge hospital bills to pay. No bueno. So if, like me, you've been the victim of an accident, you need a professional to help you get the care you need. In case of an accident, you need a lawyer to protect your rights and your wallet, and you don't have to look any further than that simple phrase by going to the URL incaseofanaccident.com for a free consultation 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if the person that suffered the accident wasn't you, but maybe it was your tia or your abuelita or something, don't worry. Everyone at In Case of an Accident speaks Spanish. They can even take messages through WhatsApp at 888-990-0911. So if you or a loved one have suffered through a horrible car accident like me, visit the team at incaseofanaccident.com for more help. Just don't forget to tell them that Veronique Medrano from Accordion to Me sent you. I believe wholeheartedly that country music um, doesn't have to be in Nashville. A lot of artists have proven that. Um, artists that have become, you know, legends at this point, um, at least in the case of country music in Texas, Freddie Fender was not from Nashville, did not record in Nashville. Um, Linda Ronstadt, who had an experience once in Nashville and said, I'm gonna get nope. out of here. Yeah, no. Nope. <laughs> and, and literally record yeah. that was the story that always stuck with me when I was doing research on her for an article. Um, cause they asked me to write about her and, um, I realized that she was truly, when you look at the history of it, the first successful rock country music artist yeah. because she came from the rock background. She was the princess of rock and roll. And when she came into a country, she infused it with something completely different. And yeah. we would later get, you know, Shania Twain, Taylor Swift, and all of these female artists who would overtake that, that legacy and run with it. But you have to start with Linda, but Linda did it so differently. Um, you know, when she was with Dolly and, um, Oh my God, I always forget the other lady's name. I'm so sorry. Uh, Emma, Emma Lou. Yes, Emma Lou. Um, Emmy Lou, sorry. Emmy Lou yeah. Harris, not Emma. Emmy <laughs> Lou Harris. And, you know, she decided, nah, I'm going to, I'm going to, you guys can come to California. I will not record over there. And they respected that. The fact that she was with people that were, that were in the industry, very, very well known in the industry, and they respected her decision to not record in Nashville because as it's kind of like any place that gets kind of like Austin is considered music city. And yeah. like, there's, there's these different areas that get known for being something. And that doesn't always mean that you have to be there to succeed. And I learned this on my own when it came to, um, and I know, I know, I know, I know we always mention the pandemic, but it was a really big lesson at the time when 
were saying, hey, you know what, Af once the, the restrictions kind of lessened at the time, I don't have to go, I don't have to live in LA to be successful in LA. Yeah. I don't have to live in Nashville to be successful in Nashville. Now, mind yep. you, there's a grant out right now that it's bylaws <laughs> for it, say that you have to live in Nashville for a year. Yeah. I think that's an insane requirement for what money you're giving. Now, if you're giving enough money that I could live there for a year, well, damn, damn sure, howdy, I'm, <laughs> I'm heading that way, yeah. bye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but if it's just for, you know, meetings and stuff like that with industry professionals, all these people take meetings ahead of time. All these people do these meetings with enough notice. Hey, I'll fly out there. I'll do whatever. And it's just interesting because the, the industry itself for country music really, really has this staunch stranglehold that idea oh gosh, yeah. that you have to live there, be there, produce out of there to create country music. And you're very right. I really do hope that one of the biggest things that comes of this is the, the dissolution um, of that particular mythos with this show. And I'm so glad that we both got to audition for it. Honestly, I'm like, yay. <laughs> I know that's really, that's really funny. Cause yeah, just today I just comment, somebody made that comment. I just said, I was like, oh yeah, they actually did approach me, but uh, yeah, they just uh, wasn't the right direction at the time. So there you go. But yeah, that is really funny. Just like the randomness of that coming up today as well. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I also think, I mean, a part of why I believe there is such that like tight fist around how to be successful in country music and that being tied to Nashville. I mean, country music is a billion dollar industry. It is actually. Um, and if we talk about the level of sustainability, you know, country music is pretty much the oldest genre of popular music that we have that has sustained, um, you know, for well over 100 years. Um, and so, you know, the systems are run a lot deeper, the systemic issues, the gatekeeping, all that kind of stuff. It runs a lot, lot, a lot deeper. And the birth of the type of the country music that I'm talking about was obviously born of the blues. Um, and that's where segregation came in, right? It's like the original country music was really just twang and blues, blues music, twang and blues music from enslaved people from Africa and the Caribbean. <clears throat> and, uh, when, you know, white folks realized that they could commodify this and this is something that they also wanted to extract and appropriate and commodify, that's when we moved into like race records, right? So there was country music, hillbilly music for white people and blues and soul music and R&B for black people and those lines and anybody else who was in the other category. Um, and those lines were drawn. Yeah, exactly it. And so it is why still to this day, you know, I'm sorry, there's a lot of people blue in their face saying that they they understand that the issues in country music and the gatekeeping and stuff like that. But there's still just been a lot of virtue signaling and performance performative, I, I think, support out there. Because once they really dig in, they don't they realize how fucking deep this runs and how yeah. much work and effort it is going to take to change. The, yeah. the, the momentum there is, is really challenging to create. And in the meantime, I think where I'm at, and I'm sure maybe other artists like yourself, you having that realization of like, I don't have time to wait for them to make good on their promises. And so that's, again, why I would rather make my art here in the land that I'm connected to here, 
with the people in like that I do know more than <laughs> more than not they aren't strangers to me they are people who give a shit about me as a human being and not just as this entity that creates art for other people to be entertained and for them to consume and for them to make some type of money off of with all the middlemen that are involved in you know the music industry um that that's what sparks that in me inspires me to stay here and create culture here um and that is expansive and inclusive and you know maybe trailblazing too right of just kind of creating some of those different opportunities and and art through that I come from a, a niche market. Mind you, I used to I used to sing and perform in mariachi and Latin jazz, bossa nova. And that's uh, that was my my upbringing. That was, you know, I in high school, I was an all-stater, you know, I I carry that with pride cuz I came from a low income area. So like having those opportunities, going to New York because I just want to trip. What does that mean? All what does all stater mean? What is so that? all stater means that you have to compete with kids from all over the state of Texas in your zone and like I was competing with kids from Corpus Christi and and San Antonio and mind you from down south so I'm like on the tip of Texas I'm on the border and I'm having to compete with people in the middle of the state to say Mm -hmm. that I'm the best singer and I'm like oh shit and this is in high school and so like the level of of performance and practice and all these things that you have to put into it is a lot it's a lot but I'm fully aware of that And I guess maybe that and the fact that like I just didn't fit in in the curriculum of college music and then eventually moved into like I'm going to quit music throughout my entire college career and just do shit I want to do. And then eventually coming back because you were talking about starting late. And I think one of those things that really just tickles me pink is that a lot of the times what ends up happening is we assume that the music has to be started young. It's like the industry likes to poach young artists to do what needs to be done. Yeah. Younger artists are more malleable. Like there's, you know, I am trying to also reframe. Thank you for repeating that to me to remind me. I'm trying to stop saying like I started late as this thing of like, I didn't start soon enough. That's something I'm trying to extract out because at the end of the day, the timing of when I started and how things came to be is exactly how it needed to be. Because I will tell you right now, me in my 20s and in my teens entering this industry as a recording artist and what it has looked like, I would have been chewed up and spit out. Like there is no way that I would have. It was not nice. <laughs> no. And I mean, it still isn't. However, I have the, I feel like I have the tools and the wherewithal to um, stand up for myself, advocate for myself, you know, uh, correct people, call them in, call them out. Um, and also just decide like, you know what, like, I just don't need to fuck with you. I don't care if this is me burning a bridge. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm not fucking here, racist. I'm not here for you whether today. you think you are or not, like that's actually what's happening. And, um, yeah. you know, people who are in genuine when their words don't match up with their actions. I am one of those people. I do remember what people say and what they promise they're going to do. Um, and if their actions line up with that. And I just feel like that's like a huge thing in general. And it's not that I, you know, I don't like I'm I'm not a malicious person. I don't like whichever. But um, yeah, I just don't like I'm just like in my mind, I just like, OK, I'm not going to fuck with that person or like that person doesn't get access to me 
or to benefit from proximity to being around me because I am a black, queer, gender nonconforming person in this industry. There is a lot of benefit now to people being associated with artists like me in this industry. It gives them Mm. credit that they are inclusive, that they aren't a part of the problem. Um, But, you know, many of even just my peers in country music in this region, which there's quite a few people here doing country music, 99% of them are white. And, you know, as much as they'll say, like, you know, like, I can't imagine and like I support you in whichever, like, two plus years, all of them, all their band members are still white. The team that they work with are still the same. You know what I mean? Like, they're not the people that they're going on shows with or booking to open for them and vice versa. There's no diversity. There's no. And so that just lets me know, like, okay, cool. Like Your words got to match your actions for me. Hella, your words got to match your actions. And and for me, that pisses me off because it's happened more than once. Like, um, you know, I remember um, and I'm not going to say their name just because I'm deciding to be nice. But like I no, no, it's I'm deciding to be nice. (laughs) I want to say this right now because I know them and they were hitting me up a bunch. They wanted me to translate their entire album, their entire Spanish album. Uh, for little to no money and because I was an expert in translating and translating from Spanish to English or no from English to to Spanish oh wow Uh uh-huh oh either way well they had a full English record and they wanted me to do that yeah Yeah. and then all of these other little things started to come up and I'm like I'm like that's interesting that that's interesting <laughs> because it's it's like are your words matching your actions the moment that they told me that um there's no such thing as as you know as issues with race when it came to the color of their skin and they didn't feel that they were um you know I, I, there's a word for it I always forget it I don't know why I'm blanking out right now but there was privilege because their skin was a lot lighter than mine you know it it really hurt me it really hurt yeah. me because then they were attacking other Latino artists and other yep. Mexican artists and I'm like okay I, I've seen enough we don't have yeah. to continue this conversation further you can stay on that side and I'm gonna stay here but it was the levels of disrespect that come from being like okay I'm using the word I'm using the the position that I have as a Latino or Mexican I'm, I'm not sure which person where they identify so I'm not gonna yep. assume right now but yep. like they know where they stand in the Latino Hispanic you know conversation and yep. yet they're using that position to manipulate and make people do what they want. And that for me was a big, like, I've already dealt with this in my other industry. I don't need this. In this <laughs> and when we're talking about age, I was like, you know, and, and I love that you brought it up because it is, it is such a huge deal. People go, Oh, yeah. well, you can't be big at 30. You can't be big at 40. You can't be big at 50. I'm sorry. A 90 yeah. year old woman just won a Latin Grammy for best new artist of the year. You can't tell me shit yep. now. No, <laughs> you, can't tell, you can't tell me shit. <laughs> can't yes. tell me shit. Yeah. That little old lady played some amazing music. Damn it. <laughs> yes. But it just incredible. says a lot. It just says a lot because it's so much easier Yes, you're so, every PR person, because we were talking about PR and the fact that both of us released a record, like, okay, let's, let's, let's try to catch like, up here. After the fact, like, oh, yeah, how do I figure out? Oh, I need to market this thing? Cool. Yeah. And, yeah. And what people don't understand is that the marketing animal of it, when you have the money, 
oh my god it's like suddenly it's yeah. like suddenly the doors are open <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> of course i'm the little shit and i'm sorry to everyone that's listening to this right now because i'm sure you all have seen me on twitter instagram or facebook i have messaged <laughs> all of you because <laughs> i know who they all are i find them linkedin I'll find you on LinkedIn too. I don't think you can escape me. And I am one of those people that has just worked double hard to not just have a publicist build the relationship for me. I yeah. want to have built something like, hey, just like, even if you saw seen me a few times, even if I've commented on some of your articles, I've, I support your articles, whatever the case may be. I support articles when they're, they're people that I reasonably like. And I'm like, okay, you guys are doing a good job doing representation here. Good, good. But otherwise it's, it's keeping that at the forefront that a lot of these relationships that yes, you can, you, you don't even have to get them. You just get that one moment with a publicist. Um, my suggestion is to really reach out to them again thank them for writing the article thank them for the time um that is how really this market really works is yep. the fact when you realize that relationships is how this all works out yeah. absolutely yeah i think you got a uh, rolling stone is- you got a rolling stone i'm like yeah yo that was such a wild uh yeah and again something like entirely unexpected and that wasn't anything that was even I think that came I don't know actually at that point I'm sure that um uh Mavis uh who's one of my uh PR uh folks had had reached out to Rolling Stone or had like pitched me at some point but that came like longer and John Freeman who wrote that article like I was included in an article about um Art, like two SLGBTQ plus artists in in the country and like kind of that rise. And then in particular, he shifted to focusing on me when he started talking about, um, yeah, like black queer artists or like racialized artists. Um, yeah, I, I, I just can't even, like still, it's just like such a weird, like, and I mean, on some level, I, I think there's always that place of like, yeah, it's like incredibly important. However, also too of like, how important really is it? You know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm always in that, that place of like for myself. And I mean, from the level of like, did I grow up like buying Rolling Stone magazines and like obsessed with them? Yes, that is, I am in that generation of like the paper copies of Rolling Stone, the huge, they used to be gigantic too. The Rolling Stone magazines used to be really big. A lot of people don't know that. Um, so yeah, to, to see my name, um, in, in there and, and, you know, to be compared to like Trisha Yearwood and Monica, he compared my music to Trisha Yearwood and Monica, like two of my hugest influences, like growing up. So to like, you know, I never talked to John Freeman for the, for like the, the blurb he did about me or anything like that. It was just, I just got tagged in it one day and like, it was just there, which does happen. Sometimes you get an interview, you know, it's coming out and there's lots of times too, you'll just you get tagged and Google trends, Google trends is your best friend. (laughs) (laughs) I have gotten tagged in so many different articles and I'm like, I'm like, what? I didn't talk to this person. (laughs) Yeah. You don't. And then sometimes too, that's why like the people who don't do their due diligence, that's why there's like articles out there that say I'm from the States that say like all these, like, you know, even just identifying me as African-American, like I'm not African-American. That's not something that I identify to as all at all and so um yeah it, it's kind of one of those like double-edged swords but yeah the rolling stone country in particular of like that that feature and that acknowledgement 
Um, and the marketing machine. Yeah. Budget makes a huge difference. It is like, yes, you can do it the other way, but oh my gosh, there's so much labor and the relationships are huge. Um, if there is that exchange between you and the writer or the reviewer, um, I always, that's something I think about all the time, not just in this, but like when I'm doing shows with my band, um, the tech people who, you know, are sound people, the lighting people at shows, like I'm always thinking about when they walk away from me, experiencing me, how are they feeling? And do they feel like they were respected, that they felt some sense of compassion and that I saw them as a human being? I wasn't like, you know, disconnected. Um, Many times, like I always ask the names of all the texts and whichever, I always shout them out by name at the end of the show. And I always get this look of surprise and then appreciation from them because that so rarely happens. I I just really try to do that. Same with my band. Um, You know, I've got a six piece band plus myself now that I've been able to build up and like, they're all most of them working musicians. So they work with other bands and groups and stuff like that. And I always get that feedback back from them of like one, they really appreciate my organization, how clearly I communicate with them, how I set things up. So it's really easy for them to just be able to show up and do what they need to do. And those things I, I think that are just really, really important is like, I'm thinking about the impact that I'm going to have on that other person Cause in the future I may need to rely on them again and I need to, you know what I mean? So if I get that buy-in from them because they have been treated well, um, I, I think that that is so important. That's such an important skill set in this type of industry. Um, yeah, those relationships, that dialogue, showing your appreciation, um, and being genuine about it is inc- like, it, it will take you so far. Oh yeah. And and it's it's one of the things that like you don't know who is in a position of power like they could be they could be your your sound engineer one day and in a position where they can recommend you for a bigger show for a bigger moment you you just never know you really don't and it's it's one of those really key pieces of you know you're building an environment as a musician and as an artist And so when you're thinking of environments, and this is now shifting to your shamanism, how do you develop a space that feels good for you when you leave the entertainer on the stage? Because at some point, the the entertainer needs to stay on the stage. You get to exit (laughs) stage left. But the entertainer, it's almost like this this ephemeral thing. It stays there. When you leave, you leave. And you become another person. So how, how have you managed within your spirituality, within who you are, to better make that divide for yourself? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, well, I mean, I, I think one always for me, it's more about how do I how do I coax the entertainer out? <laughs> that's usually like step one. Um, Dorje is my given name when I took my refuge in the lineage of Buddhism that I practice um, by my guru Dorje Drokar. It was the name that he gave me. It means indestructible white Tara. Uh, is the English translation of that. Dorje itself, uh, also the other word for Dorje is Vajra. And that means the diamond way or the thunderbolt or the diet, like it's hard, it's indestructible. Um, and so 
really early on when I knew that this was what I was going to explore, I knew that, I mean, I, I'm referred to as Dorje, like with my Dharma brothers and sisters. Um, but, um, I have my English given name, my birth name, which is Tiffany. That was from my mother. Um, but I knew pretty early on that I was going to go publicly by Dorje because of how empowered it makes me feel stepping into that. I feel protected by that name um, because of the lineage and the empowerments that my guru has given me. Um, I've been on pilgrimage to Tibet. Like I'm very like, like that. There's a lot of fortification with that name and the meaning of it. And um, so, yeah, like that is what it was. I, I remember kind of, you know, that was, I think one of the things that we stuck about out with me with like Beyonce when she was like, I'm Beyonce and then I'm Sasha Fierce. And when I'm Sasha Fierce, I'm on the stage, I channel it. And that really helped me to find that separation between my like stage fright and my fears and all that kind of stuff and just whichever. And so also something I always do when I'm on stage, I do it a bit differently now, but I always open up sacred space when I'm on stage. I, I literally, I've turned um, the prayer that we were taught and trained to do, I turned it into a song. And I would actually sing it at the beginning of my shows. And I would actually involve the audience in that. So I would wow. do like a bit of a call and answer. Um, and that also just reminded me, I was just creating safe space for me to be on stage and to be able to open up and show that side of myself to show Dorje. Um, and yeah, so that has really helped. I usually have a, one of my malas with me as well on stage um, to just help me be in that place. There's visualizations I work with. Um, and then stepping off the stage one, first off, if you're the lead, you're getting swarmed by people. It doesn't yes. really matter. <laughs> so it was like a running joke of like, I always have to remember to bring a snack or just like whichever. Cause I don't really eat before. I don't either. Really it feels tough. so weird. And, and by the time we are freed up by whatever, the kitchen is always fucking closed or like, there's always like, the food's oh, gone. So always gone. Always. It's so funny. But I mean, that's a part of it is like, there's an integration piece after you step off the stage, at least the level that I'm at in the shows I perform, where your audience is still fairly close to you. They want to connect afterwards. Mm -hmm. They, they want to be able to process that with you and have that moment to share and that is very yeah. important to me to be able to do that. I always feel bad because the band then is always left to like tear down. But there's like, dude, it's fine. Like, what are you doing? Stop trying to carry my monitor. Go. And people are literally waiting there for you to go and talk. To us. So <laughs> yeah. um, usually that piece of like, yeah, like I, I think I'm fairly good at just invoking that part of who I am as Dorje on stage. And then once I'm able to like leave the venue and like have a snack, like that's usually where I start to kind of integrate back into day-to-day -day Dorje or DJ. Um, and then I do a lot of visualization. Like I've, I've been on a break and a hiatus from performing since the beginning of October and the Junos are coming up here in Canada. Those that's like the Grammys of Canada. Um, and I'm, I'm booked to, to do some stuff, some gig or like some show stuff for that. We're filming actually um, yes! a performance for called the road to the Junos. Um, you know, so I haven't been on stage for a little bit. I just naturally, I, I get a lot of stage fright. So the last several weeks while I've been, you know, obviously like exercising and working on my voice and stuff, I just visualize myself on stage. I have to mm -hmm. and visualize that I'm having a good time and that I'm connecting with other people and I'm killing it with my vocals and the band is locked in. Um, so I invite myself to that place as opposed to sitting there being anxious of like, you know, um, so yeah, but there, there really is that, that place of me ensuring that I'm creating safe and sacred space on the stage, 
Yeah. That allows me to show up. And then also like, it also allows me to kind of put that process down. And that's usually driven by just general hunger and exhaustion by the end of it. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Now I'm just back to, you know, me off the stage. Yeah. Just me. And again, I think the other part of this truly for me is that I, I, I mean, this is me kind of being joking about it, but like, I don't know, like, I don't really think I'm shit, man. Like, I don't, like, I don't. I don't walk around with like this like air that like I'm overly I'm more special than someone else because I just like sang a song on stage and like you were into it. I'm still like genuinely like I don't know if it's that like same like Taylor Swift of like, oh my god, like people like me. Like this is so nice. Like um last year I um performed at Calgary Folk Fest. That was my first kind of big festival doing that. And you know, coming out of the pandemic, I haven't had a lot of traditional experiences with performing and marketing Mm. my album in that way and so that was like one of the first times of like we you know we're walking through going from stage to stage or even on you know when we were done um you know us just wanting to go check on another band and like strangers coming and be like oh my gosh george like i love your music and i love this and like I'm just like blown away. I'm like, what the fuck, man? Like, oh my gosh, like, thank you so much. Like, thank you so much. I had to save my voice because I had to perform so much that weekend. And so oh, I had God. to just like, make sure the I voice can only was imagine. Yeah. I know. And so I was worried that it would come off insincere, but it wasn't. But I just had to be like, thank you so much. And like, kind of just do that voice because I'm saving my voice, but I'd love to, you know. Um, there, it's so important. Is, it's so important to keep a sacred yeah. space. So yeah, important. Yeah, there, there is. Have to be protective of it it took me so long to get to the place where I even felt that I was worthy to go down this path. And so that is a huge commitment I have to myself was how do I protect this? So it is still joyful for me. And it has, it's shifted even in the last couple of years, like my goals and my dreams around this, I've had to drop a lot of them because they aren't rooted in the reality of who I am now and what I need to feel good about my art now. Um, I, I just, I have to change up what that looks like. I used to dream about touring the world all the time and that being a thing, but like, you know, I just got married last year. I'm turning 40 this year. Like I'm kind of like, I like to be at home more. I don't want to travel as much. And in in that, and if I do travel, I want it to be like a nice cushy vacay, you know, um, there's just like different, different things that are important to me now. So yeah. (laughs) Anyways, back to that part, the separation piece for me yeah, I, I really create that safe and sacred space on stage. Um, and then just have those little kind of habits of mine to get myself back out of it. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just can't believe that people will come and see me perform. I can't believe people will just spend their fucking disposable income. You think about how hard people work for their money every single day yep. and that they would choose to like spend money on a ticket that they would get dressed, that they would intentionally come and see me. I'm still, my mind is still blown by that to this day. Success looks different for every single artist. And I think that's something that's really hard for fans to understand. Like not everybody Mm -hmm. wants to be on TV. Not everybody wants to have the sold out tours. Um, And I know that everyone's like, oh, you know, more money, more money. You know, you you get to live a, a diff, you know, a, a more comfortable life. Hell yeah. If somebody gave me a million dollars, yes, my life would be, after I pay taxes, my life would be a lot more comfortable. <laughs> just in case. Just in case. I know. After just taxes. A, I, exactly. After taxes, my life would still yeah. be reasonably comfortable. Yeah, I don't. You have at least $600,000 left after that. For yeah. Sure. And so like. <laughs> 
you know, when we're looking at, at success, it looks so different for every single person. Some people want to be in Europe, want to, you know, spend those weeks. I, and it's, and this is where I think people assume that age plays a factor in, in fame because when you're young, you want to go everywhere. But I'm sorry, yeah. you could still get burnt out at 20 as the same way you'd get burnt out at 30 or 40 sure. or 50. Doesn't matter. Burnout is burnout yeah. and it'll change the way you look at the world. Yeah. Thankfully, you know, all of us had some time <laughs> by force <laughs> to chill out where we were. And now we're in a different space. Success to me looks very different for myself than it does for you. You know, you don't, you don't want to be, you know, out everywhere. I, I want to hit a point because I know what is at stake for me. For me, there's a different set of stakes. For me, there's a different set of rules because of who I am, what I represent. And, and that's okay. Like, I think that's one of those huge things that we as, as people, need to be okay with that. Not everyone wants that same level of fame as bad bunny, Shakira, um, you know, Mickey Guyton. Some of us don't want that level. Some of us do not want to be in the news every fucking day for something stupid. (laughs) Yeah. Or even if it's not like I, I really have, that has been something, you know, again, the, the person to person connections like this, I will take all day. This is like, I thrive on this type of connection, but it was something I had to say to one of my bandmates of like, in general, I was like, I get that, like, I get that I'm the front man and this is me, but like, I, in general, I'm uncomfortable with this type of attention. Like, this is mm. not, it, it's just like, I, I get a bit uneasy with it. And I think it is because you can't really at this, when it gets to these types of levels, it's really hard for you to be able to like, yeah, like you're just like, I am being asked to put myself out there over and over and over again. And like, I have the the more, you know, attention you get, the less control you have over who's receiving that and what they're doing with it. Yeah. And I'm really sensitive to that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, yeah, do I want, you know, millions and millions of streams in my music? Absolutely. <laughs> that would be amazing. It goes let, in let my bank. It goes so, in my bank. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to get to a place where I could be, you know, choosy about the PR that I do and that comes my way. I have been a little bit, but like, it's just like that part of like, I still, I want to be able to have some privacy. And I think it's just to like the boundary piece of, with all of that, with our audience, with marketing. You do not own me. Just because I share a part of my world on an interview or something doesn't mean you own me. You can enjoy the artwork. You can consume the art. Yeah. But But I'm a human being. Yes. And that gets the the bigger the fame, the more you lose of that. And it it takes so much effort. Like we were talking about earlier, takes so much effort to create spaces where we can feel like people instead of like just meat. A hundred percent. There's so much dehumanization in, in the music industry. It happens all the time. And yeah, absolutely. The more, the bigger the scale is, the more that happens. And also too, and then like the lack of empathy people actually have for you, like it really does shift because they will just regulate you like, oh yeah, well, you're like, you're famous and you're wealthy. So like, what do you have? Like, what is your issue? Or like, what did do none you- of us learn from TLC? Yeah. You can be famous and have very little money in the bank, <laughs> like for reals. 
I would so, tell you that I think people need to like be reminded of that, that I would say most artists, even if they do have a certain level of recognition, like I'm saying, like I'm still living paycheck to paycheck. Like there's not been like some huge shift. I will tell you the biggest shift would be, um, you know, my guarantee of like what I, I, what I expect to be offered in terms of performing in particular for me, like I pretty much like if I can't pay my six piece band and if I can't pay them well, I'm not going to do the show. I'm not going to do the gig. Um, but I've had enough recognition and exposure that lends it. Like I have, like, I'm able to negotiate because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and to can demonstrate, you know, like what my, I don't know, (laughs) my pull or my draw, um, to their audiences. Right. So that has been, um, really great. Like that has been a benefit of the exposure has been that I'm able to negotiate a bigger rate for shows. Um, but also, I also want to do less shows in general, like as well. Right? I love and, like, it. Do ones yes. that, are, that, do, do that, are, that are meaningful, right? Like, or, yeah. or just again, that I can have, when you're an emerging artist, the opportunity, if you're like a, a solo artist, which is still what I'm considered right now, um, there's not as many opportunities like for you to bring a full band. Like you were expected to kind of do more of like a strip down, like a duo or like just be a solo, like just to bring your guitar along and, and just like whichever. So um, that has been something too, like that I've, I've said, you know, just I've declined offers because I'm like, can you afford to bring, can I pay my whole band? Can I bring my whole band? Cause that's like how I'm doing my music. And then sometimes we're like, actually, no, we just don't have the budget for that. Like we're looking for someone that can do it for X amount. And, um, so like there, there is that part of like, do I want to have, do I wish I could finish paying off the album? <laughs> yes. I would love to do that. All those types of things. But it just has to be calculated for me in terms of like, what am I giving up to make that happen? And for me, my contentment and my happiness has to be a priority. And I just find there's so much of the industry still that just leaves a lot to be desired. And being closer to it now, I can see, like, I know a lot in particular, like last year and the year before of like, the things that Mickey was going through of like being able to connect with her, like via social media, like privately and that kind of stuff of like with all of that, that she was navigating, you know, the impact that that was having on her, like some that of was, the horrific racist that was shit rough that to was, watch. Yeah. I mean, and it doesn't mean it's still happening. Like every, it's every, not that it hasn't stopped. Oh, it's still happening. Yeah. No. Cause and people are shitheads. Mickey, Mickey still like, literally like, Mickey's at the top top at this point in my opinion like you know I still think that there's more space to be created for her at the top if I'm honest but even that it's just like it is like traumatic I'm a self-managed self like independent artist if I had a manager that would probably change a lot of of how I would approach the music industry and that might happen one day but like it's just me I'm I do it all I do everything Um, and I want to do it well. And like I said, it's, I want to make sure my intention and my impact are in alignment with how I'm working with others. And so my capacity is only so much, right? Like I still have to like work my day job as well to, to, to put food on the table and that kind of stuff. So yeah, as a team grows, that's like exposure. Then you get people who actually want to invest and work with you and believe in you, which is really, really great. Um, and I mean, that's a hard thing to do too, like based off of a debut, like one album coming out, um, even that in and of itself. Right. So it's just like the goals change with like the circumstance and what's available to me, but I'm less inclined to sacrifice Mm -hmm. 
things now. It's like, no, it needs to be easier or there needs to be more collaboration or I need more support or like, I just, I can't do it. I wish sometimes I could say yes, but like <laughs> the, the, out, the, the input doesn't match the output. Yeah. I just can't, I just can't do it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. The input does not match the output a lot of the times. Like just yeah. because you tell me yeah. that I am the best thing since sliced bread, but you're not like telling me those words, but not following it up with action means jack yeah. shit to me. Yep. And it took me so long as an artist. Like I've been, I've been, I've been releasing albums for nine years. I'm on my 10th wow. year. Uh, wow. December, 2023 will be my 10th year. And oh. I've released four records and like I, I, I think of that experience and I realize like I'm I know for a fact I'm ridiculously blessed because yeah. my family is very involved. We don't have a lot of money. So yeah. we would go to the seamstress, get like materials that were on sale to make my yeah. costume. <laughs> yep. Like my, like my parents, like one of my, one of my parents is a photographer. We never paid any photographers for the photos. It was all in house. We figured out Photoshop. We figured all that shit out to make the album covers, to do every single thing. It was all yeah. us. It was, it was just us. We were, we were just figuring it out. There was a music, there was music videos that we did. Like, um, I made friends with people in college that were in the animation department and they just wanted like experience doing something. That was where one of my music videos came out and I saved like, um, money from my, like that I didn't spend on books cause I didn't need them. And I would like save money from my job at GameStop <laughs> and a coffee shop because I had two jobs in college at the end of my college career I had those two jobs and um and a little bit of my scholarship money to make that music video and then we wow. would use random cameras that we bought um obviously for the photo shoots to make a different music video until we finally got a production company that was wanting to help us take it to that other level but it's like I only have three music videos to my name yeah. The, like the music, like I know, like a lot of people go, oh, you need to put a song in a music video, a song in a music video. I'm sorry, honey. Yeah. I don't got the money. The song's going to come out whether there's a video or not. Damn it. The expectation is crazy for independent artists, but I do understand because like you have to cut through so much bullshit. You have yeah. to, you have to really like just set yourself apart by cutting through so much bullshit and sometimes cutting through so much bullshit is making a video that's completely unique doing something that no one else would do and so my question for you is you know where where do you draw the line on what the on the industry expectation for you as a person and as an artist yeah man that has been like the steepest learning curve of this entire this entire experience for me over the last few years, honestly, has been of whom and what am I allowing to dictate my experience in this and what am I willing to compromise and not. Um, I definitely had in the first kind of year and when things were really picking up and there was a lot of PR, I definitely had people interested in working with me, record labels, stuff like that. Record labels, um, digital marketing companies and agencies again. So they like work at like, you know, promoting your album with radio stations in particular. It was like a big part of that and stuff like that. And then like, <laughs> I mean, as soon as the problematic stuff starts, which it, it almost is instantly. And again, it's all, it's never like with like malicious intent that people have, like they're just following the fucking formula that they're also 
they're perpetrating and they're also a victim of, like, to be honest. And there is that. They're like, well, yeah, like, no, like, there's definitely a place for you. And, like, we see lots of success, but you need to change your sound. You need to change the content of your songs. It needs to be, like, it cannot be over three minutes and 20 seconds. Like, there's all of these little, like, So then why the fuck are you talking to me? Why the fuck are you talking to me? Because still to this day, nine out of ten... Because almost nine out of 10 artists that they approach in that way or like whichever will say yes and they'll do it because they are desperate to succeed or they're broke or like they're waiting for the big break because nobody else like their family doesn't support it or like there's so many reasons why. And again, we're talking about power dynamics here, right? Of like, that's why I was saying like me starting at 35 was the right time to do it because there isn't, there's not a lot that I guess can, that's going to sway me. There is stuff that will sway me. Oh yeah. I think the biggest (laughs) pressure that I felt along the way there was my connection to my region, my region of like where I am and making music. There are tons of whether they're getting the opportunities or not in the platform, which I think we're seeing, but I believe that there are so many BIPOC and LGBTQ uh, plus artists in the U.S. making country music, folk music, Americana, um, roots music. Um, in this region where I live, in relation to those intersections, there is not a lot of people on like a professional level or whichever making that type of music. However, it's very popular here. It is like we in in elementary school we learn how to line dance. Like we, it, it's it's like something that is in the the culture here. Um, and the prairie culture and the farming culture. Um, so I think that there were some times that I was saying yes to things that were harming me individually because I was thinking about the greater good mm. and me leaving this industry better than I found it and thinking about 20 years from now, mm. um, an artist uh, like me who's growing up in this place, of them having someone to look to and them having that representation and seeing that somebody else did do it. And I think that as I've gotten kind of further along, I realized that like one, I had to give myself acknowledgement for what I have contributed to maybe a shift and a change and give myself permission to say like, if I don't do anything else more rooted for helping someone else along a future person, then I've done enough. And like, I can kind of, make sure that I'm okay. And I'm not like sacrificing myself. And that inherently is also going to benefit, you know, future artists down the road that do relate to me or have that similar intersection. So there is a lot of, like I said, calling in the, the record labels were both kind of more indie labels, but just in general, like it wasn't at that time, I was just like, I just don't know how I could give up ownership of my music right now. (laughs) Like it's all I fucking have, man. Like I have the debt, but I also have the asset of like, I I can't really see myself giving up my masters and I don't know what it would take for me to get to even giving up a percentage of it. Like, and that's where the conversation would kind of end. Mm. It's like, okay, well, like maybe we'll touch base and I'll, you know, yeah. If somebody wants to come with me, (laughs) record label out there wants to come with me like a million dollar advance. Yeah. Different story where we're going to talk about totally different like things. And that conversation <laughs> may be de- different. I don't know where it's ta- at. Yeah. Yes, we pay taxes here. In the so different. Tax. But it, it's like, 
So it's like, so it's like after lot. taxes, I'm yeah. going to be, I'm going to be fine. Yeah, right. <laughs> and for most people who don't realize that, like that's how, um, usually, um, record labels work and record deals, right? Like they will advance you the money to make a record. Um, you have to pay that money back. And most times they own your masters. So that's it. Like you, and yeah, I, till the, till the money comes back. Yeah. Till the money comes back. And even then some, the doesn't like, Listen, there's a lot of artists out there that have had to fight tooth and nail who are very wealthy that had to fight tooth and nail to get ownership back of their masters, even after they've made back and paid back that money to record mm-hmm. labels, you know? Um, so, yeah, there, there's just those things like I'm not willing to do. And my invitation, like, you know, an example, say, of like that person was like, yeah, like, we'd love to work with you and we think we could have a lot of success with you, but you need to change all of these things right so they basically wanted to utilize oh, I i've had that conversation so that many am, times yeah, that i am black that i am queer whichever that benefits them but they want to fit me into the fucking box that they have fit all these other artists and my response is no i think you could get more creative why don't you figure out a way to sell what i do to yes like mainstream country music because what I do I don't actually think is that far off and I got into this argument I I I have experience in marketing and PR from way back in the day but I understand demographics and those types of things and I remember saying I'm like so you don't think that my music is right for your demographic and then I responded by like tell me if I'm wrong is the number one demographic for country music mainstream country music women in the age group of 25 to 45 (laughs) the answer is yes and I was like okay well I can show you the stats and the demographics of who listens to my music. I've got the numbers. Guess what? They're in that demographic. You cannot tell me. So like, what is the real reason? Right? Like that, that is the, the big piece there. What and like, is they the don't reason? Really have an answer to that. There is no real reason other than it would make, it would be more work for them and they would have to probably give up either some privilege or some power to create and convince like, whatever, the the gatekeepers to include me. You know that little emoji of the wallet with the wings on it just flying away? Well, that's me right now. I'm the advertiser. This is an ad for me, Veronique Medrano. Go listen to my music. I have a bunch of it. This isn't a joke. Go listen to my music on your favorite streaming platform. New songs out now are Malojo featuring El Dusty and DJ Kane and Mezcal Maria featuring Beatriz Gonzalez. Or you can buy a physical CD. Are those still a thing? Okay, I'm being told they are. So go to my website, veroniquemedrano.com, to go get one now. And listen to it at your mom's house, because I'm sure she has a CD player. This has been your paid ad read. None of those people that I just talked about in the digital world, in the record label world, any of them, none of them would have a fucking job if we didn't make music. Like, isn't that the rub? Like, that's always something that blows my mind. None of you would be able to do what you do unless we were who we were. However, it is so rare that we as artists have the power when we should have most of the power, you know? Um, And so some of that, like, rebellious aspect of who I am shows up. Yes, Yeah. And when you say that, it's just so, it just, it, it it brings up a story. I have so many awful stories about how people treat me. (laughs) You know, I mean, you did it for 10 years, I I did it for two and a half. I can only imagine. (laughs) Like I ran into somebody um, who just like, like I said, I never mentioned names because one, there is such a thing as defamation. Two, oh, yeah. two, 
no, <laughs> I'm yeah, not going to deal with that. But, yeah. um, but, but like there, there's people that I've met that have made some really offhanded comments about me as a songwriter and saying, well, you don't even know how to write. You write the same shit over and over again. Or, you know, there's, there's comments that are made and these, mind you, these are people in the industry that have been in it for 20, 30, 40 years. And, yeah. you know, they're making these statements, you know, and, and they make them, and there was another one that said, oh, well, you new artists don't know how to work hard. You know, you don't, you don't pay your dues. And I was talking about this with somebody who's a journalist. And I said, you know, I find it really funny that at this point we haven't called out that pay your dues is abusive. That a lot of the times it's, oh, you need to take all the shitty things we say about you, all of the criticism that's not criticism, it's just talking about you as a person, all of the the ways that you have to, to prostrate yourself, um, sexually make yourself available because this is how the industry works. Oh yes, I'm bringing that up too. So yeah. like all of that, all of these different ways that, you know what, hey, I, I knock no one for doing what they gotta do. Not a yeah, soul. Neither. But, you know, as long as you can live with it, I could give a shit how you got there <laughs> because you got there. But yep. some people are not willing to be treated in such a manner that is inhumane. And, you know, when these record labels and these people, you're exactly right. These people come out here um, selling snake oil as if it is going to cure and and fix everything in your life. Yeah, it is. I, again, I, I would love to see in my lifetime, just, uh, just a, a huge shift in, in power dynamics when it comes to artists and the business. I mean, in general, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of capitalism in general. I, I accept that this is a system we're living in. Um, I don't think it's sustainable. It's obvious. I just not even, I, I don't think I just can say, I think about it. I think the facts are out there in the data that this is not, capitalism is not a sustainable model. Um, for their us working towards equity, if we're going to talk about that. And it is just something that you, I, I feel for me, I, I do always have to, to consider and, you know, sometimes like play the game. And, you know, when it comes to, to like doing interviews and certain things, like I go in with my eyes open, knowing that I have been invited because I'm being tokenized and because like they are just looking to be in proximity of me. And what they don't know is that I also know that. And I am also using them for like what I can get out of the situation, whether that be again, like a credit um, or a quote or like just whatever that is. But um, even that, I, it's not something that I do all the time in particular now. Definitely in like that first year, I just felt like I had to say yes to everything because I was lucky, right? Like that's just it. Um, I know so many people, career artists, that have been doing this way longer than me that have not gotten that exposure that I did. And I do just think it was, um, luck and timing. And on top of that, I'm not going to take away from my album and my project. I am so proud of it. I, there's nobody that can tell me that that album wasn't good. Like, and I, I think that that is something that's really important for me to carry with me. Like I can sit down and listen to my album front to back and be like, yo, like chef's kiss. This is, um, really good, but there, that is just a part of it. It, it is luck. It is obviously resiliency and perseverance as well. Timing comes into it. And I think in my case as well, just the very unique situation of 
the intersections that I live at, the art that I make and the timing of where we are in society, all of those things lined up for me to get the success this far. And so even though like, yeah, still living paycheck to paycheck and all these things, what has happened because of the investment and all the work that was put into this album, creating it and getting it out there. And then the subsequent support that came from that, like I'm in really good shape for my next project if and when I ever release it, um, of that, the, the very least that people will be much more open and responsive to listening to what I have to offer and con- connecting with it. Um, and you know, however that looks, we'll see. I'm, I'm really kind of just in this place right now of like, I've been sitting on some stuff and I'm just like checking in with my capacity of like, am I, even just from this album and the exposure, like even connecting and talking to you, like my album's been out since November, 2020, I just got reached out from a publication in Berlin uh, last week to book an interview. Like I'm still doing fucking PR based off of my first album that was released two and a half years ago now, yes. you know, which is great. I love to hear it. That's why I was like, I love to and hear I that. And I think that's where that the industry has it wrong. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and I think that's where the industry has it wrong. Like they, they want, I think there has to be a balance of like, yeah, you let out some, some Lucy's just cause you yeah. feel like it. But also like saying, hey, you know what, I'm I am going to, you know, just just create what I want to create and and stay on tour. I mean, my God, some people have stayed on tour. Lauren Hill released one album and she is still touring that album to this day. So, obviously, you know, people can do it like you don't. Some people don't have to create more than they need to create. You know, a pilgrimage is is such a such a very. self-reflecting thing that I, that I feel like it connects you to something else. So how was that? Oh my God. Um, first of all, like being able to go to Tibet, um, it's incredible. It's incredibly, uh, challenging to travel to Tibet in general, just for anybody. Um, it's not like an easy process. First, you have to have a visa approved by China because China occupies Tibet. Um, still, even though I will always recognize Tibet as a sovereign state, um, it is still underneath the rule of, of China. Um, so that's the first thing is like, um, just getting that and being able to go there. Uh, you know, we're talking about just places in particular, like temples and stuff like that, that have been around for thousands of years. Um, you know, spending a whole day to travel up to the top of a mountain and finding, like a hundred to 200 feet statues, gold statues and temples at the top of these mountains. And like thinking about like, how did you get here? <laughs> Where did this, you know, how, how is this even possible? How is this still standing? How, um, there's just so much, um, I guess, invitation to the mystery and the capacity of what we can and have done in the past as human beings. Um, and I think in particular talking about outside of who we were as people and society and as a human race before the clutches of capitalism, um, and, you know, like systemic racism and all of those types of things, um, coming to play. Uh, so yeah, I think that there's just, uh, I have just, I feel very humbly like lucky that I was able to go. Um, it was to this day, 100%, one of the most profound experiences that I had. I was there for um, roughly about three weeks or just under three weeks. And then I actually traveled to Thailand after that on my own. Um, but yeah, I, I just, uh, everything changed there. <laughs> um, uh, from 
like I said, just being able to go to sacred sites, sites connecting to my lineage, uh, you know, through my guru um, and his monastery over there and that we were able to travel. We were ha- harassed a lot by the police while we were traveling and got stopped a lot and asked for our passports and, um, you know, were turned around from certain areas that we were going and having to find then a different way to like get into those places. Um, so there's just a lot of like persecution happening. This was like 10 years ago now, 10 plus years ago now. So it's even more challenging to travel to, to Tibet now than it, it was then. Um, but that all being said, yeah, like you're literally, you're connecting to just ancient, absolute ancient in our idea of what ancient is, um, medicine. <laughs> and, uh, I was a very changed person, uh, from that experience. It changed my trajectory and what I thought could be possible for my life. Even if I didn't know exactly what that looked like, I definitely knew, um, and connected at that point with, with truly understanding, I guess, like divinity or what it could be and what that could look like and how it could guide me. And, um, and then when I went on to Thailand a couple of weeks after that, uh, I ran, I just traveled by intuition when I got to Thailand, I just bought a ticket to Bangkok and then I was just going to figure it out of like what I was feeling. And I eventually found myself on this random little, um, island in, in Southern Tibet or pardon me, Thailand. And, that's when somebody called me a shaman for the first time, like a total stranger that I'd met introduced me to somebody else. And I was like, no, no, I don't know. I don't know why you're using that word. That's not like, you know, uh, at that time I was already practicing energy medicine and it was really just more of like a hobby and a bit of a, like my own self-care thing. And that I would just do for others. Like, um, and it was so funny that like, just this huge, uh, black guy, his name is Tio, he's from California. He's actually got like this really cool uh, beer company now that he's launched. But he was randomly there. And he, like he knew, you know, still that wasn't something that was that popular. And he knew what I was doing. I was working on somebody else I had met. And he was like, are you doing like, you know, like Reiki or like whichever, which I wasn't, but something similar to that. Um, and then somebody else, yeah, introduced me like, like just, it, it just opened up all this information and that path of exploring that when I got back, uh, led me to, uh, going down to South America and, and training with the four winds society and Dr. Alberto Veloto, um, and the curriculum that they put together working with Kyoto shamans and, um, the Peruvian aspect of shamanism and that entitled, like, um, along with like what I was able to learn and be taught by my guru and through like, just me again, doing workshops, classes, learning about myself. Um, yeah. South America is also very different, both very like sacred sites of like energy and divinity. Um, and, but yeah, there was a huge difference and it, I, I got different reflection, but it was like the trip to Tibet and then subsequently to Thailand, the pilgrimage to, to Tibet, and then the trip after to Thailand, awoken me the path that I needed to step onto or that I was being encouraged to step on around being um, somebody that facilitates energy medicine and healing for others. And then through that, then the second pilgrimage to South America and finishing up the training in South America, because I also went down to Joshua Tree Tree for some of the training. It happened over the course of two years. Um was when I discovered in that path of the music that I was supposed to be doing. Um, so those two pilgrimages are like the, the two pieces that brought forward the singing shaman, truly those two, um, spiritual trips, experiences, 
being pulled into those those areas is is what really awoke that in me. And there was like a duality that I thought there. I think that I really thought that they had two separate things and I was shown that they didn't, that they could feed off of one another and, and be in relationship mm-hmm. with each other. And that, that feels like such a key part of, of work. And uh, when it comes to being an artist, um, just in general, I mean, yeah. no matter what type of art that you make, it feels so important that you understand the energy that you're putting out into the world. And it's even, I mean, if you didn't believe it before, you know, believe it now. The things that you say, the words that you put out into the universe, the things that you say, the way that you carry yourself, you know what? It, it carries a lot of weight when you're out with other people because you're sharing energy. And as a performer, I've experienced, you know, a huge crowd where suddenly, like, like you were saying earlier, it's the bigger the crowd, it's almost, it's almost warlocky. I know that sounds yeah. so bad, <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's almost like you're, you're really having to <sighs> harness the energy that you have. And what you want people to feel and how you want them to act. The best visual representation of this is this wild ass documentary that I'm sure chingles of people have seen already called Woodstock 99. And if you don't believe in the energy that 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 comes back and forth from a performer to the audience and back, watch that because that tells you exactly what can happen but on the negative side of it yeah how you walk into a situation what you do can 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 really really affect the people that you're trying to engage including the artwork like if you paint how are you uh, engaging with people what are they getting it and you can't control everybody let's be clear you're not you're not a uh uh, what do you call them? You're you're not there like going, ooh, you're not hypnotizing people. You're not a hypnotist. <laughs> no, but no. you're, you're <laughs> I do I do guide close. people into I do guide people into a trance like state in my work. Like I just I did that before I was just with you. I just had a client that I did exactly that. There was no hypnotization happening, but definitely bring into a trance. <laughs> um but yeah, it is an exchange. Like there's no mm-hmm. there's no way around it. You and you are in a position of power when you are the one on stage with the microphone. Like that is just it. You are the one. Yes, so because you, that is yeah. That's why I feel oh like my God, I, I was talking. I, I want to be with, so intentional about that. And I was talking with um, an artist. Uh, he is a Creole rock and soul. His name Whoa. is Sean Arduin. And we were Ooh. talking about exactly, we were talking about exactly that. And we were having this whole conversation and it, br- it brought that to mind, you know, energy and sharing it. And he goes, you know, the power of a microphone and speakers is not discussed enough when we're talking about the energy yeah. we give and the energy we take because speakers like amplify what you are saying and putting out there. So whatever you're doing however you're feeling, whatever the energy is in the room, you are amplifying it by X amount of decibels, which means you are no, you have a lot of, 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 I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the word. Ah, you have a lot of, you know, it's like power. power. We're just going to say that. You have a lot of power. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, no, it, it, influence. Yeah. You have a lot of influence. influence. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you do. And also to like, um, you know, I can even liken that back to, so when I'm, when I'm working with a client and bringing them into a trance like state to make them more receptive to changing things on an energetic or spiritual level, we're trained to use things that disrupt the frequency of that person and their field. And we use rattles and drums and things like that in our voice to do that. Um, and that's also what amplification and speakers do. The frequency that's put out, like the actual hurts that are put out by speakers and even just the tone of music <clears throat> disrupts people's energy field and opens them up to receiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is like, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if like anybody out there, if you've had this experience, like when you hear really low bassy, like bassy notes within a bass. And if you were really close, like you'll literally like, you'll feel a physical response in your gut, in your stomach. Um, like we are very sensitive to, to frequencies and obviously speakers amplify that. Um, so yeah, like it is, it's a, it's a position of like power in that sense and like of influence. And, um, also remembering Mm -hmm. that when people are in the audience, they are there with the understanding that they are there to receive something from you. So they're already in, for the most part, an open and receptive state. And then there's all these other things. So yeah, man, it's, it's a big deal. And I mean, we know the influence that people as artists can have on the audience because they mm-hmm. maybe do listen to our album and it has helped them through a really hard fucking time. And so they do feel that connection. I mean, my spouse and I are just listening to this five part podcast around this band named Headley. They're like, they were a very popular Canadian band. Um, and the lead singer, uh, Jacob, Ho- Jacob Hogard was finally arrested and put into jail for sexual assault and like all these horrific things that he did to these women and girls because he was in a position of power and they were like, you know, and he used that to position himself in a way to get them to, Mm -hmm. you know, literally bend to his will and to harm them and abuse them um, because he was in that position of power. He was the one with the microphone. So it's not like, I think it's like all of those things, like, I don't ever take for granted when I'm up on stage and I have the microphone and people are fucking looking at me. Like I I cannot believe maybe people don't subconsciously realize that, but I do uh, subconsciously all the decisions they made to show up there today, to listen to what I'm singing to them and what I'm saying to them. I don't take that for granted ever. Um, and it's why I'm trying to be so intentional with what I put out there and like, the shows I do and the stages I'm on and all of those types of things to ensure that that exchange just feels in right relationship all the time. And, um, but yeah, yeah. it is, it's such a trip, man, to, to have, have the microphone for sure. <laughs> just to have the microphone, just to have the microphone and take then your, everybody looking your, at you. Take your like, spots on okay. open mic. Seriously. Damn it. <laughs> Literally, yeah, you should. That's a great yeah. place uh, to work on. I, I kind of skipped those experiences of like, you know, working out my stuff at open mics and, and things like that. So the, the, one of the best ways that I was trained to perform on stage obviously from, you know, being a child and and doing arts and stuff like that, but there was a huge gap. But one of the biggest things that set me up for that was then when I started um, like leading circles and meditation circles and stuff like that, facilitating group stuff um, as a shaman is also what helped build up that confidence for me to get on the mic and guide people through a musical experience. And that's, that just speaks to how art, 
is so influenced by what we do in the real world and how we engage with the real world, with the spiritual world. How do we engage with that and how do we bring it back? Um, I always trip out. Like I always cry and I trip out every single time I get a standing ovation or an encore because it, it just like you, like it just feels like I have never been the front and center yeah. So once I took that power for myself and stopped letting anyone else dictate it, it's just that energy came off and it was like, okay, like we're going to keep going with this, but it's such a sensitive spot because when you are number two, it's hard to see yourself as number one. Yeah. And it's, it's a very difficult space to kind of come out of. And it's, it's beautiful to see that, that like you said, sometimes I wish that less people who were kids would get into music and just be kids, just, yeah, just make mistakes, just do the dumb things because it's a lot harder for you to be manipulated and told what you can do and told what you can't do. Um, when you're 25 and, and just angry <laughs> when you're 25 well, and angry and just ready to ready to kick some ass. I agree wholeheartedly. One of the most tragic stories in in music history to me is the story of Michael Jackson. And, um, you know, obviously there's a lot to unpack around his legacy, but you want to know what? He was an abused child. His father, just again, was reminded of like, his father used to hold a belt in his hand while him and his brothers were rehearsing when he was like, you know, five, six years old, seven years old. Um, to beat them if they messed up a line, a dance step, like as imagine that, like as an artist of like, that is how you're introduced into your performing. Um, you know, I remember reading things where he was like, sometimes my father would just walk in a room and I'd vomit because of like how scared I was of him. And I, I just feel like it's just such a tragic, I mean, I'm using it as another example of like, look at all the huge, the burnout Justin Bieber went through. Like he freaking, you know, that's a totally different like thing. Sean Mendez just like Sean Mendes just canceled a whole I mean, his voice tour. is gone. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Like, but these are all artists that started really, really young. And, you know, I, I think exactly it. I agree with you. I think that there is space for more and more for just encouraging kids to be kids. And again, it's just capitalism drives that of like, well, how quickly can we commodify the talent of this child? Maybe by the time they get to 15, they don't want to fucking do music like that, man. Like it's just, but they've been, you know, they've yeah, been like um, it's too much. championed into that, that sometimes they maybe feel like there isn't an opportunity for them to do something different at this point. Right. So um, I do want to be one of those people that encourages people like it's never too late. Like the, the timing is always right for you to pick up and explore a dream that you had and see what it might look like in reality. Now, as we get to the end of the program, because we could go on, we could, we could know, talk about a, the visual we've albums. Been on a journey. Uh, we, <laughs> we've been on a journey. You have, you have taken me on the most beautiful journey of what <laughs> art is and, and how you see spirituality and art come together. And so I would love for you to tell the audience that's listening today, what is life accordion to you? What is life accordion to me? Well, um, I would say that the first thing is that I believe that life is just impermanent. Life is change. And um, for me, it looks like how, how am I in relationship with change? 
And mm. what am I doing to empower myself to be an agent of change and not to be dragged along by it, um, to not resist it so much, um, to trust it, uh, to make friends with it, to be in right relationship with it. That That is, I think, the basis of my life is just that it's always changing and evolving. That's the truth that I don't think anybody can dispute um, we are habits of creature. We often want to resist change, but that does not mean that, um, things are not changing all the time. Um, and I think, you know, as I, I move into, into my forties and into this, the second half of my life, I mean, I already feel like if tomorrow was my last day and knock on wood, I don't want that to be the case. Like I, I don't have any, like I've lived a very full life. I have lived the shit out of my life. I have, it's been messy. It's been brilliant. It's been traumatic. It's been incredibly impactful and healing. And one of my best friends who has been in the same, we met up working in radio a really long, long time ago. That is actually what I went to school for way back in the day was radio. Um, he's still, we met when I was an intern. He's still in radio. He's still got the, you know, solid job. And something he says to me almost every year is, uh, you know, we always exchange our little messages and he always applauds me for honoring my voice and my path and not being afraid to change direction. He like always says that. And even though he's like, I love my life. I love that. You know, I've, I've just done this steady thing, but it's like, this like one of my favorite things about you is that you will just like, if there's a different path that opens up and you feel truly drawn to it, you will go for it and you'll do it. And Um, I agree with him. Like I am that person and I, I am my type of the commitment that I have, I think is not maybe what a lot of people think commitment is by that. Just sticking to one thing. I'm committed to living a very full life. I'm committed to experiencing it as much as I can. I believe, and this is an extension of my, of my religion and my Buddhism is that like, if you have been, if you're here as a human being experiencing life right now, Um, that means that there's been a lot of merit behind that. Like it is very lucky to be a human being on this planet. Um, and obviously there's nuance to that for the intersections that you live at and where you've been born and all that type of stuff. In a lot of ways, I have an immense amount of privilege in those instances. Um, but that, yeah, this is, I I'm here and, and I, I, I feel lucky for that. And like I said, I've lived a very, very full life. I feel like I want to continue to live a full life. I maybe want there to be less in that fullness. I'm <laughs> like doing less. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, yeah, I think the goal now is for me to look at how I can achieve, achieve sustainable contentment, not necessarily happiness, but just contentment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still working on this. I don't know. I don't have the answers of how this is going to unfold for me, but I also obviously want to contribute to society and positive change for society. And I, I'm working on, you know, just the themes of visibility and stuff that's happened here. I would like to continue to be able to do that and have an influence in that, but for it to be somehow more subtle. I know that sounds maybe kind of weird or counterintuitive, but I think it just goes back to me saying, like, I've lived a very full life. Um I want to continue to do that, but I want it to be maybe less work and, and feeling like, um, that I'm always on the front lines of something. And I feel like that has happened for me a lot in my life that I've been on the front lines 
put there by other people and then internalized and put myself in that position. And I like, and it's usually the front lines of some type of harm or strife or, or, you know, hardship. And so, yeah, the next 40 years, I I want there to be more ease and more contentment and soft girl era. Yeah. Yeah. It it really is. And I, I mean, look, and I think that softness for myself of, of just me offering that to myself and yeah, I am. I, I have one of my mentors back in my twenties had told me they were so frustrated with me. They're like, just pick one thing and just do it. Like you're such a commitment. <laughs> and like, I was so hurt by that. I was just like, okay, you just want me to conform? Cause why? Like, what is that? And I remember just leaving that place and just, it affirmed something for me of like, no, fuck that. Like I am committed. I am a very committed person. I'm committed to living the life that I am looking to live. And I don't know exactly what that looks like still to this day. It's shaping and evolving because everything is also changing around me all the time. Um, so yeah, that's, that's life according to me, accordion to me. Um, (laughs) is just continuing to work on being in right relationship with change. And with that, I hope that all of you take this as time to look at the changes that are happening in your life and just go with the flow. My name is Veronique Medrano, and you have been listening to the Accordion to Me podcast with my wonderful guest, Dorje. And as always, you guys, never forget, puro amor, puro besos. Puro text mix. Bye. Thank you for listening to Accordion to Me. The team behind this week's episode includes mixing and editing by Juan Pablo Diaz, theme music by Rodrigo Montalvo, produced by Javi G from MD Media. In-person recordings were done at the Spotify studios and remotely through Riverside FM. Accordion to Me is distributed through Anchor, and you can stream Accordion to Me wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm your host and executive producer, Veronique Medrano. Puro amor, puro besos, puro texto.